1: Good morning, Chris. Good to talk again. We enter a new week, and it certainly strikes me that we're starting to live through extraordinary times again. I'm feeling a little bit like a drama king this morning. If you look at what has happened in the UK over the last number of days and the impact it's having in UK financial markets, if you look at what central banks around the world did last week, um, incredibly aggressive tightening of policy. Uh, We had the election in italy yesterday which is throwing up um predictable results but still quite extraordinary results so that there there is an awful lot going on and of course here in ireland we have the budget tomorrow Uh, and before i move into the agenda i just like to on our behalf thank everybody who responded to our um query last week about the future of our podcast going forward. So thank you very much for all of your contributions. Um, We'll be making some decisions over the coming weeks. So hopefully we will keep as many people as possible happy. Um, Tomorrow here in Ireland, we have the budget uh, brought forward because of the cost of living crisis. Um, And it would appear that the bout of wet weather we've had in Ireland over the last week has given enormous growth to the money tree because um, it is likely tomorrow that we're going to see an incredibly aggressive fiscal stimulus package. Um, and obviously, the cost of living is going to get major attention. Um, I think there'll be significant um, initiatives in relation to the housing market. You'll probably see a pretty significant childcare package. And of course, there's going to be massive increase in... In spending on social protection. So I think it's going to be a real catch-all budget uh, with money thrown at everybody. And I guess in our post-budget um pod we can discuss that in more detail. Um, moving <clears throat> to the international scene again, I mean, as I said in my introduction last week was quite incredible on the interest rate front. We had the Federal Reserve increasing interest rates by the UK by a half percent, Norway by a half percent, Sweden by 1%, and Switzerland by 0.75%. So central bankers are really upping the ante in a pretty dramatic way. And at the same time, we see oil prices continue to ease back, we see gas prices continuing to ease back, and global shipping costs have declined very significantly um, in recent times. So these are all, I guess, precursors of lower inflation to come. But despite that, central banks are continuing to up the ante. And um, we've discussed it here about the dangers of central banks doing too much, forcing you know too much of an economic slowdown um, in an effort to bring inflation under control. And I think last week, the equity markets particularly um, basically made the the strongest statement yet we've seen from markets in relation to what central banks were doing. It was a bad week. And certainly there's a strong sentiment growing in the market that central bankers are going to do too much, that they are going to force a significant global recession. So um, really, really uncertain times. And, uh, I I guess you can always say it, but I I have this strong sense this morning that the level of financial risk, the level of market risk, the level of political risk out there is incredibly elevated. Yeah,
2: I don't think you've um, uh, mentioned the elephant in the room, Jim, which is that, you know, I know people that have taken up smoking again because they don't think there's much point in being a healthy person anymore because Putin is clearly out to destroy us all. And that with the nuclear saber rattling that he did last week, some people I know have reached that rather extreme, I hasten to add, conclusion that all our futures are very grim indeed, thanks to what is happening in Ukraine, thanks to Vladimir Putin's threatened threatened use of nuclear weapons. So, as you say, their risks abound. They are everywhere. I'd like to start with the old-fashioned crisis that we're in, which looks like a sterling, pound sterling crisis, and ask you a very direct question. In days of old, when we were much younger, Jim, the pound sterling falling to the levels that it's at now, and the implied level that it's at against the old Irish pound, should it still exist, would mean an economic crisis for Ireland, Um, would have meant an economic crisis for Ireland, but it seems no longer. The obvious point to make is that the structure of the Irish economy has changed so much. We don't export nearly as much as we did to the UK, relatively speaking. Uh, other regions and countries are much more important to us now than they were, so that we can withstand this shock. In the old days, it would have been a crisis for the Irish economy, this level of sterling. And indeed, it was back in the day. Do you think that's all true? My my, my rather glib answer is true. And I think the very specific question I've got for you is, there will be some harm for Ireland with sterling at this level, won't there?
1: Yeah, there will. I, I think, the, the thing that is kind of saving Ireland a little bit at the moment well there 's a number of things I can talk about, but looking at what 's happening on currency markets, I mean the theme over the last couple of months has been one of dollar strength. Uh, the dollar strengthened dramatically against the yen. Um, it has obviously appreciated dramatically against sterling um, following quasi um mad budget on mini budget on Friday. And of course, um, it's also gaining strongly against the euro, and it's below ninety-seven um, cent this morning against the dollar. Okay, sorry, the euro is below ninety-seven against the dollar. So the fact that the euro is weakening against the strengthening dollar, um, and also that um, sterling is weakening against the sterling against the weakening dollar, is keeping the Irish position relatively stable you know we haven't seen a dramatic move in the sterling irish exchange rate um but that there is definitely a more fundamental point you make i mean one of the benefits of ireland's integration into the european union over the last 30 years and i guess particularly becoming a founder member of european monetary union in excuse me back in 1999 it, it would all suggest you know that the Irish economy has diversified its economic risk considerably. Uh the UK this year will probably account for around 7% of Irish merchandise exports which will be the lowest level we've ever seen in our history with the UK. So our direct exposure to the UK has been reduced very very significantly. So that means that the sterling Irish pound exchange rate of old is no longer as significant. But as you say, it will impact, you know, it will make it more difficult for the Irish agri-food sector to sell into the UK. However, um, the the UK market is a very buoyant market for agri-food product at the moment because Brexit has totally destroyed the UK um, food supply chain and indeed many other supply chains So there is a strong requirement for importing food from um, somewhere. And um, given that we share the same currency as our competitor export countries in the euro area, um, I think we'll still manage to sell a lot of food into a market that needs lots of food. Uh, So I I wouldn't be that um, pessimistic about the impact this is going to have on Ireland. Uh, We do import quite a bit from the UK. so. Obviously, there's, there's going to be some um, imported inflationary pressure, but you know, in a nutshell, uh, the UK has become quite irrelevant for the Irish economy at a macro level, and hence the problems we are seeing with sterling at the moment will have nothing like the sort of impact of old. What do you make about what's
2: going on in the UK at the moment? It, it feels like an old-fashioned sterling crisis words I haven't used since the early 1990s, um, perhaps even longer than that. Um, we've had what, what was a budget in the UK on, uh, on Friday. It's been called all sorts of things by, by government in order not for it to be scrutinised by the Official Office for Budget Responsibility. They can't call it a budget. So the fact that they're trying to escape scrutiny, I think, is very revealing, it tells you a lot, it tells you all that you need to know, really. Because they know what that scrutiny would have revealed, which would have been 99.9% of economists, including the ones in the Treasury, that institution that this government hates, and in the Office for Budget Responsibility, and everywhere else, would have told them that this is just nuts, and that they are doing the sorts of things that emerging market finance ministers back in the 70s and the 80s used to do, and what, in a way, Turkey is doing now, uh, which is just... From a macroeconomic perspective, crazy. And I think there's probably been tons of analysis, even in the Irish newspapers and media over the weekend. We don't need to rehearse what they did, other than to say that it looks, from an orthodox economics perspective, very, very strange, very high risk. It's been likened to a a casino like Gamble. And I think that's the right way to think about it, in that you can go into a casino sometimes and put all of your wealth on a single number on the roulette table and bet that it comes up. There is a chance, of course, that it will. But the the odds are stacked against you big time if you put everything on a single number. And I think that's the kind of way, the right way to think about what they've done. It could work. And that's um, the bit that I think hasn't uh, been considered, understandably so. Um, Could they get lucky uh, because that, those are really the only circumstances in, in which that this would work. But Jim, as economists, I would say that if they do get lucky, the almost monolithic consensus of the economics profession that this is going to be either a mistake or a disaster, I think we probably have to rewrite a lot of economics
1: textbooks if it does work. Would you agree? I, I would totally agree, Chris. Um, on the surface, it appears a utterly bizarre fiscal stance to take, particularly in the current environment. And the financial markets have made it very clear how they view this sterling has fallen to the lowest level ever against the dollar that smacks of an old-fashioned sterling crisis if you look at government borrowing costs in the uk the 10-year yield is over 4 4.06 percent this morning and rising um two-year yields were almost hitting four percent friday evening But a year earlier, they were at 0.4%. So there has been a dramatic repricing of UK assets over the last few days. And it does come on the back of what definitely on the surface seems like an absolutely outrageous fiscal experiment to take. The next few days will be incredibly interesting because if sterling continues to behave like a rock, if government bond yields continue to rise, uh, the question is how will the Bank of England respond to that? There's a couple of suggestions out there at the moment. One is that the Bank of England should just send out a very strong message this week about its commitment to the 2% inflation target um, and suggest that come the November meeting that it's going to increase interest rates aggressively. The second option would be that the Bank of England just turns around this week and increases interest rates dramatically. In other words, bring forward very quickly the interest rate increases that were already in the pipeline. In other words, front-loaded um, in an effort to sort of convince the markets that at least while the Treasury is gone off on a dangerous tangent, that at least the Bank of England will maintain um, control and try and instill a semblance of stability into the whole UK financial system. So, Can I just interrupt you there because yeah. you talked at the top of your piece there
2: about what's been happening to government bonds. That attracts far less attention in the popular media at least because government bonds are tricky to understand for people who don't operate in financial markets and are far less visible in people's daily lives than things like exchange rates. Um, everybody understands that exchange rates affects the cost of imports and can affect the cost of your foreign holiday. The cost of government borrowing, which is what a bond yield is, is the most important variable out there in financial markets and therefore probably the most important variable in people's lives, actually, in terms of pure numbers. And I think it's very significant this morning that we have Italian bond yields, which is a market... That normally is associated with basket case economic policies, a change of government, such as we are going through at the moment, because Italians do that on on average since the war, about once every 11 months, I think it is. And just general financial profligacy, economic nuttiness, economic basket caseness, if I can abuse the language. And their bond yields are 4.4% this morning. Greece, people might remember, was at the epicentre of the great financial crisis, the Eurozone crisis, part of that financial crisis of a decade ago. Its bond yields are just over 4.5%. And the United Kingdom's bond yield is 4.1%. So they've joined what rather pejoratively used to be called the pigs. So I think that we're going to have to rechristen the pigs, which, which was Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain, and sadly, it used to be double I sometimes in some people's minds, inappropriately, in my opinion, because Ireland was part of that during the financial crisis because of the problems that, that we had. Um, but I think we need, need to rechristen it, Jim, because certainly some of those countries should be dropping out now. Ireland definitely should. Um, Spain doesn't belong in there. I'm not too sure. Probably Portugal either, because they certainly don't have 4% bond deals, nowhere near it, actually. But if, if we kept it at pigs, does you pigs work? as in United Kingdom with the pigs. So we, let, let's coin a new... Let, let the other hand coin a new acronym this morning in that we now have in Europe, because the UK, despite not being a member of the EU, is still in Europe, at least the last time I looked, and they should now be called the U pigs, because the United Kingdom is behaving like a classic emerging market or submerging market in terms of its economic policies. Um, I don't think the Bank of England will put up interest rates in an emergency way this week. I think there's a good case for saying that they should, economically. But politically, of course, I think that would be taken very, very badly by the nutcases who currently inhabit the the corridors of power in places like Westminster and Downing Street. Um, It would be seen as a nakedly political rather than economic move. But the metaphor that everybody is using, was it simile? I'm not sure, is that the Chancellor of the Exchequer has his foot to the accelerator, pushing it all the way down to the floor, And the Bank of England has its foot on the economic brake. That is just unsustainable. Something will happen to cause that to really have an accident. I mean, the the car will spin out of control. Uh, That could happen in one of a number of ways. Economists are debating whether or not it will be sterling, for example, that causes things to fall apart. Um, Paul Krugman, who is an exchange rate expert, Nobel Prize winning international macroeconomist, thinks that sterling won't misbehave in the way that some others think it will but plenty of people disagree but we where we can argue about the finer details of what might happen next um, i just don't think it's going to be good when you have the two arms of economic policy fiscal and monetary pulling in opposite directions or if you want to use the car metaphor both the brake and the accelerator full on you know you're going to have an accident things will spin out of control by definition the bond market to me is more important than the, ex- the foreign exchanges. Uh, they're both significant, but the bond market signaling that uh, the United Kingdom has joined traditionally uh, basket case uh, bond markets, um, I think is very, very significant. If I was advising the Chancellor, thank goodness I'm not, um, I would say be very, very worried. And I'd actually say to both the Chancellor and the British Prime Minister, be very worried for your jobs, because this is something that the Conservative Party won't like, which is that the, they are traditionally the the, the the sound money party, the people who, their electoral appeal over many, many generations to the British people, rightly or wrong, has always been that your money is safe with us, the economy is safe with us. It clearly isn't. And so this big gamble that they've done, it, it is extraordinary. For all our sakes, I actually do hope that it pays off. But um, obviously, I do not think...
1: That it will, yeah. It's it's fascinating. Larry Summers, the former secretary of the U.S. Treasury and um, a a noted economist in U.S. circles, at least, um, he said that the U.K. has now stopped behaving like an emerging market. It's now start to behave like a submerging market. Uh, The Institute for Fiscal Studies was projecting at the weekend that the deficit this year would hit 190 billion, which would be the third highest peak. Since the Second World War, so all of the the indicators you look at are just quite extraordinary at the moment, uh, from an economic perspective. But from a political perspective, I mean, it, it was a n- nakedly class-driven budget. Um, you know, abolishing the forty-five p tax rate for very well-off people. Um, you know, there the, the was there was if if you look at the distribution effect of the changes that were made. I mean, there's a massive redistribution from lower paid workers to higher paid workers through the tax and welfare system. I mean, politically, how is that going to play out? Well, let's think about the economics before we get to the politics. I
2: have been able to identify three and only three economists out there who think that any of this makes sense Jared
1: Lyons, Julian Jessup,
2: and Patrick Minford.
1: Patrick Minford,
2: okay. I I haven't found any more. They may exist, but that's it. I do think that. The, those three economists genuinely believe what they're saying, but I do think that they're mistaken. You rightly argue, in my opinion, that it's class-based, ideologically, politically driven, but is there any economics behind it? You're probably just about old enough to remember that during the era of Ronald Reagan, there was a whole school of economics in the United States, and it spread out elsewhere, based on something called the Laffer Curve, which was something designed by an economist called Arthur Laffer, which said that beyond a certain rate, if you keep increasing taxes, the tax take will actually start to fall because of what is called the supply side response to tax changes. In other words, when you put taxes up, usually if you tax something, there's less of it. In the context of income taxes, people will work less hard or the other way around if you cut their taxes. And the curve is essentially an inverted parabola, as we say, or the, like a, a U upside down. And there's a point at which if you push taxes beyond, tax take will, 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 will fall if you put taxes up. And conversely, if you start from the right, the maximum of that curve and cut taxes, tax revenues will rise. That's the supply side response to tax cuts. I actually did the work in the UK Treasury when Nigel Lawson was chancellor in the 80s when I was an economist there, on the supply-side case for tax cuts, on the analytical background to the Laffer curve. And I wrote several papers. I think I can talk about them now because they were obviously quite confidential at the time. But it wouldn't come as a surprise to you as an economist, Jim, to, to know that I established the case for the supply-side case for tax cuts, where they would work, and found that they, that case is, would occur only very, very exceptionally, very rarely, if at all. The starting point for the economy would have to be extremely unusual for tax cuts to produce the economic growth sufficient that they were self-sustaining, that the uh, tax cuts would produce the growth that Kuateng and Truss um, think they will. I was able to do that work as a junior economist in the Treasury and convince my colleagues in the Treasury that, th- that this was the case, that, th- that the tax cuts wouldn't produce the renaissance for the economy that Nigel Lawson and Margaret Thatcher thought. And so the puzzle to me, the intellectual puzzle, and I think I know the answer to it, is why all these years later does this idea make a comeback? Now, somebody famous once said the bad ideas are like cockroaches, you can kill them, but they just keep coming back. And um, zombie economics, I think it's also been called. But I would have thought that even if the papers that I wrote in the UK Treasury have long since disappeared into some dusty filing cabinet, but some other bright spark in the Treasury will have informed the Chancellor, this doesn't work. It really doesn't. The conditions under which your tax cuts will have the effects that you say they will, they occur so rarely that it's once in a blue moon. Why have they done it then? I suspect that they don't believe what they're saying, and it comes back to your original diagnosis. This is pure ideology. This has got an awful lot to do with the way in which I think that... It's insidious and it's not explicit. I'm not suggesting for a second anybody's doing anything illegal, and I use the term in a moral or an ethical sense. Things have become corrupt in the UK. This trust's chief of staff is being paid through a private company. Uh, th- there are links between the staff at number 10 or one staff member, I think possibly even the same bloke, I'm not quite sure, and an FBI investigation into potential political shenanigans in the Caribbean. And we have all of the stuff that happened under Johnson's watch. We have all of the different ways in which it just looks dodgy. And one of the things that um, emerged this week is that um, hedge funds made a lot of money out of Sterling's devaluation, again, just as they did during the Brexit referendum. People who donate an awful lot of money to the Conservative Party are making a lot of money right now, both via the tax cuts and also by the shenanigans in financial markets. I didn't used to be much of a conspiracy theorist, but in this way, I think I am. I think that we've become, in an insidious, pretty grim sort of way, corrupted here, both intellectually and financially.
1: That's strong stuff, Chris, but uh, it it does appear to capture very well uh, the prevailing climate over there. Um, I see the Labour Party conference has got underway in Liverpool this week. The internal polling they have done, I think as far as I know it's internal, would suggest that if the current polling results were to materialise in an election, it would give Labour Party a majority of 54 seats. And, 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 and I suppose this just raises the question, how will the UK electors respond to what's happening at the moment? Um, you know, if they continue to see sterling under pressure, if bond yields continue to rise, if the UK has been increasingly viewed as a submerging market economy, it doesn't matter.
2: Well, of course it matters, Jim, but I think the question you raise is absolutely the right one and absolutely fascinating because the traditional thing, of course, in British politics is to say that when the Conservatives are messing things up in the way that they are now, maybe they've never messed it up as badly as they are now. This is worse economic management than the time when Sterling was kicked out of the exchange rate mechanism all the way back in the early 90s. Will the pendulum swing back to Labour in that traditional way that you described there, the way the opinion polls are suggesting? I'm not so sure. I think that an interesting alternative is presented by what's happening in Italy today. I think that things could become so extreme here that a new political force could emerge. We saw it during the Brexit referendum when people started voting for Nigel Farage's UKIP party. I could easily see him or somebody like him making a political comeback and offering um, something Um, even weirder than the the current right-wing nutcases inhabiting the Tory party. So I think it's it's extremely unstable politically what will happen as a result of this economic catastrophe that they are risking as a result of their weird fiscal policies.
1: Yeah, it's it's, looking around what's happening elsewhere. I mean, we have um, centre-right parties currently negotiating the formation of a government in Sweden. That would... Would represent, I mean, a pretty well, it is the Swedish election result was a pretty dramatic result given Sweden's history of, you know, being a very sort of a liberal social democratic economy with strong social structures, etc. In Italy over the weekend, we saw three parties the Brothers of Italy, the League, and Forza Italia gaining around 43% of the seats, likely to form a government over the coming weeks. It'll take some time. Giorgio Maloney as the uh, Prime Minister and Salvini and Berlusconi, you know, coming back to prominence again. And that is also pretty dramatic stuff. But uh, And given the history of particularly, uh, well, all of those three parties, really, they would have been neo-fascist backgrounds, uh, particularly the brothers of Italy, very Eurosceptic. And yes, the markets this morning are not terribly concerned by it all. OK, there's a bit of Euro weakness. Their bond yields in Europe have increased a bit, uh, but nothing like as dramatic as might have been the case. I mean, is, is it possible that um, these three parties will come in and form a government um, on the back of economic failure by the previous government, led by Mario Draghi. You know, this seems to be happening everywhere. Political systems are failing to deliver. And that gives rise to more radical political systems to put in place. Um, and here in Ireland, of course, we're seeing the same thing. You know, there's a strong belief amongst many that Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil and the Greens have made a total bags of running the country over the last few years, and we could agree or disagree about that. Uh, But that's the perception that's out there amongst many people. And as a consequence, we see Sinn Féin, the strongest party, likely to form the next government. So there seems to be an increasing view in countries that, listen, what we've had isn't particularly working well, so let's try something radically different. Yeah, Um, there
2: is a strong appetite for that, and we've noticed it in Ireland before I noticed that uh, David McWilliams column in the Irish Times on Saturday echoed a theme that we've explored on this podcast many times in recent months which is that uh, he uh, the headline said that the the Ireland is crap brigade are getting it wrong. There was also an interesting article and I'll, I'll shut up here about about economics written by Mark Paul on Friday. Uh, I know that uh, you drew my attention to it and that you saw it. I have to say that Mark, I am a huge fan of his. I, I think he writes incredibly well when he, when he, a much better writer and a much better columnist, for example, than Fintan O'Toole or Una Mullally. But when any of those three stray into economics, they always get it wrong, I'm afraid. They, they make such basic and fundamental errors. And he made the point about, a point about debt, as bad to bequeath debt to our children as it is to um, bequeath climate change to them. And of course, the, the fundamental error that he's making is that we bequeath the balance sheet to our children, not just debt. They also inherit all our parks, hospitals, schools, roads and infrastructure that have been built up over many centuries, including the stuff that we have invested in as well. And what matters to future generations is the balance sheet, the net asset value of what it is that we're bequeathing It's wrong to focus exclusively on debt. The broad point or the narrow point that he was making about you can bequeath too much debt in the context of what we're doing and in terms of um, making a point about now is not the time to be making permanent expenditure commitments in in the upcoming budget, I think was a good one, but he did it in the wrong way. I think you could make that point about simply using the current budget surplus to make un- essentially permanent spending increased commitments um you can do that without making a, 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 an actual economic analy- analysis error um which is which is what he did but anyway that that's enough of that um I'll shut up there um I think we're running out of time Jim what have you got left
1: and I I just think it's interesting you should interpret what Mark Paul was saying I kind of disagree with you I mean I I, I agreed with a lot of what he was saying. And um, the, the problem, of course, here is tomorrow we're going to get a massively, uh, massive stim- fiscal stimulus. There'll be, you know, obviously a series of once-off very significant measures. Um, there will also then be a significant increase in permanent spending, particularly in areas like social protection, uh, probably health, even though theres is, there there is a... Speculation out there at the moment that Stephen Donnelly is very pissed off um, with the lack of money he's going to get in the budget, but it remains to be seen what falls out of that. But um, we're seeing a dramatic increase in spending here, which is adding, which will add to the national debt. And yes, there is no focus whatsoever on how we spend the money. Um,
2: I think you can make all those points without doing the old fashioned, neither a borrower nor a lender be, that debt is not the issue here.
1: It's what you do with it,
2: it, Chris. Absolutely. So don't focus on the fact that debt's going up or down or in this particular case going up. Actually start asking questions about value for money, because there was another piece by Fintan O'Toole over the weekend saying, oh, my God, anybody that criticised the tax commission, I was waiting for him to mention you, actually, but he didn't. Um, he, w- he wouldn't stoop that low, I suspect. He couldn't bring himself to mention you by name, Jim. And of course, he, you know, he, he came out with all of the usual nonsense arguments about why the Tax Commission is, is possibly the, the, the best document that's been written since the Bible, possibly better than the Bible. The arguments are always just nonsense. They, they don't make sense in their, in, in their own terms. And this is what I say about when they stray into economics, they really display the fact that they don't know what they're talking about. I think you can make the points. About simply increasing public spending every time you get these sorts of uh, pressures uh, in in ways that don't make those don't make the argument from an economic wrong place. You can sim- you can point out that that the health service is a consumer of resources in a in really quite an extraordinary way, and that the the old probably um, lie, but like all great lies, it comes wrapped around a kernel of truth that you could double the budget for the HSE or whatever it's called these days and still produce very little positive outcomes for, for health, because it is just a black hole into which money can be poured. And like a black hole, it will just absorb the resources without spitting anything back out. And questions about efficiency in the public sector are never asked. Do we get, can we do more with less? Can we do more with the same? None of these questions are ever asked by the fin to no tools of this world. It's always about finding somebody else to tax, um, or and these days, uh, I accept there is an, uh, a, a debate about borrowing. But come at it the right way, ask the right questions. Don't come at it from um, economically economic ways that don't make much sense. Is just the way I would.
1: Excellent. Yeah. Uh, i i agree with most of that okay uh, thanks jim chris we shall talk in the aftermath of the Irish budget yeah we should um, probably do a special this week yeah we should um i'm on the road a lot um mm-hmm. a lot of gigs and stuff around the country uh relates to the budget but anyway uh, let's i'll see. have to
2: create an avatar and um get the machine and i'll have a conversation with myself except that half the conversation <laughs> will be with your avatar that would be interesting, wouldn't it? That would, Chris, yeah. At least Listen, that way, you probably end up, I'd get the avatar to agree with me.
1: <laughs> Listen, good, good to talk. Um, promises to be an incredibly interesting week. Absolutely. Cheers, Jim. Speak soon. You, bye.
0: Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined.
1: You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power, on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms.